Chapter 20 of The Silver Horde. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The Silver Horde by Rex Beach. Chapter 20 Wherein Fingerless Fraser Returns. Big George had lost no time, and already the towboats were overboard while a raft of timber was taking form alongside the ship. As soon as it was completed, it was loaded with crates and boxes and paraphernalia of all sorts, then towed ashore as the tide served. Another took its place, and another, and another. All that night the torches flared and the decks drummed to a ceaseless activity. In the morning, Boyd sent a squad of fishermen ashore to clear the ground for his buildings, and all day new rafts of lumber and material helped to increase the pile at the water's edge. His early training as an engineer now stood him in good stead, for a thousand details demanded expert supervision. But he was as completely at home at this work as was Big George in his own part of the undertaking and it was not long before order began to emerge from what seemed a hopeless chaos. Never did men have more willing hands to do their bidding than did he and George, and when a week later the Juliet, with Willis Marsh on board, came to anchor, the bunkhouses were up and peopled while the new site had become a beehive of activity. The mouth of the Calvic River is several miles wide, yet it contains but a small anchorage suitable for deep-draught ships, the rest of the harbor being underlaid with mud bars and tide flats over which none but small boats may pass. And as the canneries are distributed up and down the stream for a considerable distance, it is necessary to transport all supplies to and from the ships by means of tugs and lighters. Owing to the narrowness of the channel, the Juliet came to her moorings not far from the Bedford Castle. To Marsh, already furious at the trick the ice had played him, this forced proximity to his rival brought home with added irony the fact that he had been forestalled, while it emphasized his knowledge that henceforth the conflict would be carried on at closer quarters. It would be a contest between two men, both determined to win by fair means or foul. Emerson was a dream-dazzled youth, striving like a knight-errant for the love of a lady and the glory of conquest, but he was also a born fighter, and in every emergency he had shown himself as able as his experienced opponent. As Marsh looked about and saw how much Boyd's well-directed energy was accomplishing, he was conscious of a slight disheartenment. Still, he was on his own ground, he had the advantage of superior force, and though he was humiliated by his failure to throttle the hostile enterprise in its beginning, he was by no means at the end of his expedients. He was curious to see his rival in action, and he decided to visit him and test his temper. It was on the afternoon following his arrival that Marsh, after a tour of inspection, landed from his launch and strolled up to where Boyd Emerson was at work. He was greeted courteously, if a bit coolly, and found, as on their last meeting, that his own bearing was reflected exactly in that of Boyd. 
both men beneath the scant politeness of their outward manner were aware that the time for ceremony had passed here in the northland they faced each other at last as man to man i see you have a number of my old fishermen march observed yes we were fortunate in getting such good ones you were fortunate in many ways in fact you are a very lucky young man indeed how well don't you think you were lucky to beat that strike it wasn't altogether luck however i do consider myself fortunate in escaping at the last moment boyd laughed easily by the way what happened to the man they mistook for me let him go i believe i didn't pay much attention to the matter marsh had been using his eyes to good advantage and seeing the work even better in hand than he had supposed he was moved by irritation and the desire to goad his opponent to say more than he had intended i rather think you will have a lot to explain one of these days he said with deliberate menace with fifty thousand cases of salmon aboard the bedford castle i will explain anything meanwhile the police may go to the devil the cool assurance of the young man's tone roused his would-be tormentor like a personal affront you got away from seattle but there is a commissioner at dutch harbor also a deputy marshal who may have better success with a warrant than those policemen had the trust's manager could not keep down the angry tremor in his voice and the other perceiving it replied in a manner designed to inflame him still more yes i have heard of those officers i understand they are both in your employ what i hear you have bought them do you mean to insinuate i don't mean to insinuate anything listen we are where we can talk plainly marsh and i am tired of all this subterfuge you did what you could to stop me you even tried to have me killed you dare to but i guess it never occurred to you that i may be just as desperate as you are the men stared at each other with hostile eyes but the accusation had come so suddenly and with such boldness as to rob marsh of words emerson went on in the same level voice i broke through in spite of you and i'm on the job if you want to cry quits i'm willing but by god i won't be balked and if any of your hired marshals try to take me before i put up my catch i'll put you away understand willis marsh recoiled involuntarily before the sudden ferocity that blazed up in the speaker's face you are insane he cried am i emerson laughed harshly well i'm just crazy enough to do what i say i don't think you're the kind that wants hand-to-hand -hand trouble so let's each attend to his own affair i'm doing well thank you and i think i can get along better if you don't come back here until i send for you something might fall on you marsh's full red lips went pallid with rage as he said then it is to be war eh suit yourself boyd pointed to the shore your boatman is waiting for you as marsh made his way to the water's edge he stumbled like a blind man his lips were bleeding where his small sharp teeth had bitten them and he panted like an hysterical woman during the next fortnight the sailing ships began to assemble standing in under a great spread of canvas to berth close alongside the two steamships 
for once the ice had moved north there was no further obstacle to their coming and the harbor was soon livened with puffing tugs unwieldy lighters and fleets of smaller vessels where but a short time before the brooding silence had been undisturbed save for the plaint of wolf-dogs and the lazy voices of natives a noisy army was now at work the bustle of a great preparation arose languid smoke-wreaths began to unfurl above the stacks of the canneries the stamp and clank of tin machines re-echoed hammer and saw maintained a never-ceasing hubbub down at the new plant scows were being launched while yet the pitch was warm on their seams buildings were rising rapidly and a crew had gone up the river to get out a raft of piles on the morning after the arrival of the last ship emerson and his companions were treated to a genuine surprise cherry had come down to the site as usual she could not let a day go by without visiting the place and clyde after a tardy breakfast had just come ashore they were watching big george direct the launching of a scow when all of a sudden they heard a familiar voice behind them cry cheerfully halo white folks here we are all together again they turned to behold a villainous-looking man beaming benignly upon them he was dirty his clothes were in rags and through a riotous bristle of beard that hid his thin features a mangy patch showed on either cheek it was undeniably fingerless fraser but how changed how altered from that radiant flower of indolence they had known he was pallid emaciated and bedraggled his attitude showed hunger and abuse and his bony joints seemed about to pierce through their tattered covering as they stood speechless with amazement he made his identification complete by protruding his tongue from the corner of his mouth and gravely closing one eye in a wink of exceeding wisdom fraser they cried in chorus then fell upon him noisily shaking his grimy hands and slapping his back until he coughed weakly summoned by their shouts big george broke in upon the incoherent greeting and at sight of his late comrade began to laugh hoarsely glad to see you old man he cried but how did you get here fraser drew himself up with injured dignity then spoke in dramatic accents i worked my way he showed the whites of his eyes tragically you look like you'd walked in from kansas george declared yes sir i worked me how where on that bloody windjammer he stretched a long arm toward the harbor in a theatrical gesture but the police queried boyd oh i squared them easy it's you they want yes sir i worked again he scanned their faces anxiously i'm a scullery maid what that's what i said i've rustled garbage cans till the smell of food gives me a cold sweat i'm as hungry as a starving cuban and yet the sight of a knife and fork turns my stomach he wheeled suddenly upon alton clyde whose burst of shrill laughter offended him don't cry your sympathy unmans me tell us about it urged cherry what's the use he demanded with a glare at clyde that bonehead wouldn't understand go ahead boyd seconded with twitching lips you look as if you had worked and worked hard hard 
i'm the only man in the world who knows what hard work is start at the beginning when you were arrested well i didn't care nothing about the sneeze he took up the tail for i figured out that they can't slough me without clearing you so i never take no sleeping powders and sure enough about third drink time the bulls sprang me and i screw down the main stem to the drink and get jerry to your fade tell it straight interrupted cherry they don't understand you well they ain't any pullmans running to this resort so i stow away on a coal burner but somebody flags me then i try to hire out as a fisherman but i ain't there with a the gang talk and my stuff drags so i fix it for a hideaway on the blessed isle that's her name can you beat that for a moniker this sailor of mine goes good to grub me but he never shows for forty-eight hours or years i forget which anyhow i stand it as long as i can then i dig my way up to a hatch and mew like a house cat it seems they were hep from the start and battened me down on purpose then made book on how long i'd stay hid oh it's a funny joke and they all got a stomach laugh when i show when i offer to pay my way they're insulted nix that ain't their graft they wouldn't take money from a stranger oh no they permit me to work my way the scullion has quit see so they promote me to his job it's the only job i ever held and i held it because it wouldn't let go of me savvy there's only three hundred men aboard the blessed isle so all i have to do regular is to understudy the cooks carry the grub wait on table wash the dishes mop the floors make the officers beds peel six bushels of potatoes a day and do the laundry then of course there's some odd tasks oh it was a swell job more like a pastime when a mop sees me coming now it dances a hornpipe and i can't look a dish rag in the face all i see in my dreams is potato parings and meat rinds i've got dishwater in my veins and the whole universe looks greasy to me naturally it was my luck to pick the slowest ship in the harbor we lay three weeks in the ice that's all and nobody worked but me and the seagulls you deserted this morning eh i did i beat the barrier and now i want a bath and some clean clothes and a whole lot of sleep you don't need to disturb me till fall he showed no interest whatever in the new plant refusing even to look it over or to express an opinion upon the progress of the work so they sent him out to the ship where for days he remained in a toad-like lethargy basking in the sun sleeping three-fourths of the time and spending his waking hours in repeating the awful tale of his disgraceful peonage to unload the machinery particularly the heavier pieces was by no means a simple matter owing to the furious tides that set in and out of the calvic river the first mishap occurred during the trip on which the boilers were towed in and it looked to boyd less like an accident than a carefully planned move to cripple him at one stroke the other ships were busily discharging and the roadstead was alive with small craft of various kinds when the huge boilers were swung over the side of the bedford castle and blocked into position for their journey to the shore george and a half dozen of his men went along with the load while emerson remained on the ship they were just well under way when either by the merest chance or by malicious design several of the rival company's towboats moored to the neighboring ships cast off 
the anchorage was crowded and the boiling six-mile tide made it difficult at best to avoid collision hearing a confused shout to shoreward boyd ran to the rail in time to see one of the company's tugs at the head of a string of towboats bearing down ahead of the current directly upon his own slow-moving lighter already it was so close at hand as to make disaster seem inevitable he saw balt wave his arms furiously and heard him bellow profane warnings while the fishermen scurried about excitedly but still the tug held to its course boyd raised his voice in a wild alarm but had they heard him there was nothing they could have done then suddenly the affair altered its complexion the oncoming tug was barely twice its length from the scow when boyd saw big george cease his violent antics and level a revolver directly at the wheelhouse of the opposing craft two puffs of smoke issued from weapon then out from the glass encased structure the steersman plunged scrambled down the deck and into the shelter of the house instantly the bow of the tug swung off and she came on sidewise striking balt's scow a glancing blow the sound of which rose above the shouts while its force threw the big fellow and his companions to their knees and shattered the glass in the pilot-house windows the boats behind fouled each other then drifted down upon the scow and the tide seizing the whole flotilla began to spin it slowly rushing to the ladder emerson leaped into another launch which fortunately was at hand and the next instant as the little craft sped out from the side of the bedford castle he saw that a fight was in progress on the lighter it was over quickly and before he reached the scene the current had drifted the toes apart george it seemed had boarded the tug dragged the captain off and beaten him half insensible before the man's companions had come to his rescue is the scow damaged emerson cried as he came alongside she's leaking but i guess we can make it george reassured him they directed the second launch to make fast and towed by both tugs they succeeded in beaching their cargo a mile below the landing we'll caulk her at low tide george declared well satisfied at this outcome of the misadventure then he fell to reviling the men who had caused it don't waste your breath on them boyd advised we're lucky enough as it is if that tug hadn't sheared off she would have cut us down sure that fellow done it a purpose george swore seaman ain't that careless he tried to tell me he was rattled but i rattled him if that's the case they may try it again said the younger man huh i'll pack a thirty-thirty from now on and i bet they don't get within hailing distance without an ironclad the more calmly emerson regarded the incident the more he marveled at the good fortune that had saved him we had better wake up he said we have been asleep so far if marsh planned this he will plan something more yes and if he puts one wallop over we're done for george agreed pessimistically i'll keep a watchman aboard the scows hereafter that's our vital spot but the days sped past without further interference and the construction of the plant progressed by leaps and bounds while the bedford castle having discharged her cargo steamed away to return in august the middle of june brought the first king salmon scouts sent on ahead of the sockeyes 
but boyd made no effort to take advantage of this run laboring manfully to prepare for the advance of the main army that terrific horde that was soon to come from the mysterious depths either to make or ruin him once the run proper started there would be no more opportunity for building or for setting up machinery he must be ready and waiting by the first of july for some time his tin machines had been busy night and day turning out great heaps of gleaming cans while the carpenters and machinists completed their tasks the gill netters were overhauling their gear the beach was lined with fishing boats on the dock great piles of seines and drift nets were being inspected three miles below big george with a picked crew and a pile driver was building the fish trap it consisted of half-mile leads or rows of piling capped with stringers upon which netting was hung and terminated in hearts corrals and spillers the intricate arrangements of webbing and timbers out of which the fish were to be taken it was for the title to the ground where his present operations were going forward that george had been so cruelly disciplined by the interests and while he had held stubbornly to his rights for years in spite of the bitterest persecution he was now for the first time able to utilize his sight accordingly his exultation was tremendous as for boyd the fever in his veins mounted daily as he saw his dream assuming concrete form the many problems arising as the work advanced afforded him unceasing activity the unforeseen obstacles which were encountered hourly required swift and certain judgment taxing his ingenuity to the utmost he became so filled with it all so steeped with the spirit of his surroundings that he had thought for nothing else every dawn marked the beginning of a new battle every twilight heralded another council his duties swamped him he was worried exultant happy always he found cherry at his shoulder unobtrusive and silent for the most part yet intensely observant and keenly alive to every action she seemed to have the faculty of divination knowing when to be silent and when to join her mood with his and she gave him valuable help for she possessed a practical mind and a masculine aptitude for details that surprised both him and george but rapidly as the work progressed it seemed that good fortune would never smile upon them for long one day when their preparations were nearly completed a foreman came to boyd and said excitedly boss i'd like you to look at the iron chinks right away what's up i don't know but something is wrong a hurried examination showed the machines to be cunningly crippled certain parts were entirely missing while others were broken they were all right when we brought them ashore the man declared somebody's been at them lately when how questioned boyd we have had watchmen on guard all the time have any strangers been about nobody seems to know when i got ready to set em just now i saw this the iron chink or mechanical cleaner is perhaps the most ingenious of the many labor-saving devices used in the salmon fisheries it is an awkward-looking yet very effective contrivance of revolving knives and conveyors which seizes the fish whole and delivers it cleaned clipped cut and ready to be washed with superhuman dexterity it does the work of twenty lightning-like butchers without the aid of these iron chinks boyd knew that his fish would spoil before they could be handled 
in a panic, he pursued his investigation far enough to realize that the machines were beyond repair, that what had seemed at first a trivial mishap was in fact an appalling disaster. Then, since his own experience left him without resource, he hastened straightway to George Balt. A half-hour's run down the bay, and he clambered from his launch to the pile-driver, where, amid the confusion and noise, he made known his tidings. The big fellow's calmness amazed him. "'What are you going to do now?' "'Butcher by hand,' said the fisherman. "'But how? That takes skilled labor. Lots of it.' George grinned. "'I'm too old a bird to be caught like this. I figured on accidents from the start, and when I hired my Chinaman, I included a crew of cutters. By Jove, you never told me. There wasn't no use. We ain't licked yet, not by a damn sight. Willis March will have to try again. End of chapter 20